0: You are listening to Jack Bowser at Harvest Community Church in Cattanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled "John Wrote So That We May Believe," recorded on Sunday, April sixteenth, two thousand seventeen. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa dot org. Let's join Jack as he preaches. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm going to begin my sermon in a little bit more unorthodox way than what you normally get. In that, I'm going to set the expectations of the message right up front. I want to let you know so you don't have to try to figure it out. From a practical teaching perspective, I was asking my questions, what, what do you want them to know whenever we're done with the sermon, when I'm putting this together? And I, I said, you know, that God wants us to have a trusting relationship with Him, that defining moments in our lives have a way to push us towards or away from God, and that hope, our hope, is in the resurrection of Jesus. Then the next question that I had was, okay, now if they have that, if they get that out of the sermon, what do you want them to do with it? What do you want them to do? Well, I want you to grow deeper in your faith and trust of God. I want you to filter defining moments, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, through the lens of God's word. And then I want you to live without fear by trusting God. Kevin just mentioned a few moments ago that we're busting out at the seams uh, with our children's ministry. And a few weeks ago, Harvest held what we called a Reaching Higher Summit, a teacher summit. And we wanted to recognize the importance of our teachers to us. We wanted to encourage them as they continue to volunteer their time in preparing and engaging our children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We wanted to show them how much we appreciated them. So we had a really great luncheon in the back and their sacrifice and efforts. But we wanted to challenge them. And it wasn't just the children's ministry, the people that teach here, but all four campuses. We wanted to challenge them to consider opportunities to create an irresistible environment. You're going to start hearing that terminology around here. An irresistible environment where children would love to come to church so much that they'd actually be waking up mom and dad, say, let's go to church. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Why this emphasis on children? We're serious about it. According to various researchers, most people put their faith in Christ before the age of 18. Some statistics show it's about 90 to 95% born-again Christians accepted Jesus before the age of 18. George Barna breaks down the data a little bit, and he's done a more recent survey where he says that about 43% accept, actually accept Jesus before 13, an additional 21% by 18, total of 64%, and then there's an additional 13% somewhere between the ages of 18 and 21. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why it's so important to get our kids in Sunday school and church so that they can hear Jesus. After your 21st birthday, only 23% of you born-again Christians accept Jesus. Only 23%. Statistically speaking, it becomes more and more difficult to reach people for Christ the older they get. This should pose a a dilemma for all of us that we should all be concerned about. Why? Because if I look around this room, and myself included, we have family members Friends, co-workers, neighbors that are older than 21, that have not known or have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And my question is, how do we reach them for Jesus? How do we reach them? In his book, Deep and Wide, Andy Stanley points out that all healthy relationships are built on trust. He states, as trust goes, so goes the relationship. That's, a, that's key. It's a truth. It was true in my relationship with my wife. When we first got married, we did not have a trusting relationship, and we did not have a very good relationship. Some people who had known us back then wouldn't have gave our marriage six months. And it was all my fault, by the way. Okay? But as trust goes, so goes the relationship. Well, sin was introduced in the world By one act of mistrust. In Genesis, we read about that mistrust or when trust was broken between God and man. Let's read it Genesis 3 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, this is where the trust was broken. When the woman saw that the tree was good for, fruit, for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam and Eve broke their relationship with God by one act of mistrust. That one act, what we call sin, has corrupted all of creation, including us. And we are separated from God. By our sin. And the whole story of redemption. Throughout that whole story, God is on mission to re-engage mankind in a relationship established and built on trust. That's why our salvation is based on faith and not by works. This is your first map. If you take out your pins in your map, you can fill in the blanks. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of works so that no one can boast this passage accurately identifies that we are saved through faith by place, placing our trust solely in god in fact even our faith is a gift from god additionally the passage points out that our works our works any effort to look good in front of god any effort to try to merit god's favor don't carry any weight in repairing our broken relationship with God. God wants us to trust Him. That's why Stanley accurately identifies and says Christianity is an invitation to re enter a relationship of trust with God. When we're asking people to come to Christ, when we're asking people to come to church, we want them to re enter a relationship of trust with God. God is so concerned about our broken relationship. And loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Here's your second map, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Onward in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in Romans 8, 20, or 34, who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at his, the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So with that as our backdrop, that God desires to, place, to uh, desires a faith-filled relationship with each and every one of us, The question is, how do we grow our faith and trust in God? Especially if you're one of those ones that don't know Christ and you're over 21. We're already talking about taking care of the kids. We're talking about the folks in this room. Stanley identifies five catalysts that fuel the development of faith. I want to go over those real quickly with you. Practical teaching. That's what we're talking about here. Applying God's Word to our everyday life. How do we do that? Private devotions. Reading God's Word to hear from Him yourself reading God's word, personal ministry, serving one another in the ministries of his church, providential relationships, people that come into our lives, that speak the truth of God's word into our lives, and then pivotal circumstances, what I'll call life events that have a way of shaping or reshaping our thinking about life. He identifies those five catalysts that really help a person grow in their faith. For today's sermon, I'm going to be focusing on those pivotal circumstances. I'll call them defining moments in life that make us think about life a little differently. Just to be clear, there are positive and negative circumstances that can occur. Some positive examples are like getting a promotion, a new job opportunity, marriage, having a baby. Some of you may be thinking, yes, that's whenever... I came to Christ, or that's what made me think about Jesus. Some negative examples, negative examples. Loss of a job, suffering a severe injury or prolonged illness, divorce, death of a family member or friend, or even facing the prospect of your own mortality. The conclusions of what we consider about God in the midst of going through one of these defining moments can drive us towards or away from him. Now, I'm a tangible guy. I mean, you can talk about these lofty things, but I like to bring things down to earth. So I have a few examples of defining moments in my own life and what they meant to me. For some of you that have attended uh, membership class, you already know this defining moment is part of my testimony. Um, As I was growing up, I didn't grow up in a family where we went to church. My exposure to church was whenever I would visit my grandmother for summer vacation on weekends growing up on a dairy farm. She would read scripture to me and she would take me to church. I can remember one night about seven or eight years old where she was reading about hell. And I was scared. I guess you could call that a little defining moment for a seven or eight-year-old. I can remember going upstairs crying and saying, "God." whatever you do, don't let me go to that place, okay? And then as I grew up, as I grew up, you tend to move away from God because I wasn't in a family that was involved in the church. Moving away from God, you only, you only wanted God when you think you needed him, you know, when, like when you're in trouble or uh, when things aren't going your way or when you want to date that pretty girl that doesn't have anything to do with you, right, and you're praying, and that doesn't work that way as, as well as you already know. Um, after high school, I went right into the military. And I learned how to take care of myself in very hazardous situations. I, got, I learned self-discipline and confidence. It's exactly what I needed at that day and age in my life. My wife and I got married in 1983. And I felt pretty confident. You know, I felt pretty confident I could handle life situations For just about anything. I worked at the local utility company and I handled 12,000 volts with rubber gloves and bare hand. Right? I mean, you feel pretty confident like that. Boy, was I ever wrong. I was wrong because about August of that year, my wife informed me that she was pregnant. That was my defining moment. That was my pivotal circumstance. That was my wall. It shook me. I'm here to tell you. It shook me to the core. This is a positive defining moment. But it shook me to the core. I had no idea, none whatsoever, how to raise a baby. I didn't attend any classes in school. There wasn't even an election for that. Okay, who tell, who teaches you how to do that? I mean, how are you supposed to learn? I mean, you just don't know. And it really shook me. And compound that with, with the evil that I've seen in the world. I mean, I was thinking, how can I protect my child from illness or something like cancer or or bad people out there that want to take them away from me, or even death. It was then Susan and I, my wife and I, decided to start going to church. And I can remember, it was like one of the first times we went there, the pastor made an altar call, and I was right down front, both her and I, giving our lives over to Jesus. Uh, I knew that we needed to church, and I knew that we needed him to raise our family, By the way, it was in all these things that I couldn't control, I started to realize, you know, I wanted to turn my children over to him. I'm not going to be able to protect them. I can provide a roof over their heads, food on a table, clothes on their back, but I can't protect them all their lives. And so as they were born, every one of them I turned and released right back to God and put him under his provision and his care. Through that defining moment of having children, God taught me, I don't have much control in life. Not as much as I thought I did. He exposed my pride. I thought I could take care of life's situation. It was a simple thing of having a baby. Okay? He made me realize that we live in a fallen world, a world mar- marred by sin, where bad things happen to seemingly good people. God taught me I needed to trust Him with the things that are outside my control. This positive defining moment pushed me in my faith towards Him. You get the gist there? As I continue to age and glean wisdom, I found that these defining moments have a way of driving us deeper in our faith with Him. For example, a a health event that occurred a number of years ago. I can remember waking up on a Saturday, and I had this tinge or pain right in the middle of my back. And I'm laying there, and I'm trying to... It almost woke me up, and I'm trying to move a little bit and stretch a little bit, and there's still this pain. And it started to increase a little bit. So I sat up, and I'm starting to move and stretch to try to think, you know, thinking that maybe I slept a little the wrong way. And pretty soon the pain started radiating through the center of my chest. Well, you know where I'm going with that, okay? Uh, And as I sat up, I'm thinking, oh, wait a a minute. And, okay, I work in the electric electric utility industry, and so you get CPR training. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'm starting to run down through all the symptoms of a heart attack, pain in the chest, sweating, pain in the arms, radiating out the arm, clamminess. I had all those except the arm issue, right? And as I remember, I remember denial starting to set in. I'm thinking, I'm too young to have a heart attack. Oh, by the way, that's in your CPR training too. The first thing is denial. So I wake up my wife, and I says, hey, you need to take me to the hospital. It's, it was starting to get bad. Now, I just need you to know, I live in Worthington. We're going to Armstrong Hospital right over here. It's a five-minute drive. I know I should have called the ambulance for those of you who are the EMTs in the room. But it's a five-minute drive. I jump in the car. I'm in the full upright position. By the time we hit the off-ramp over here to the hospital, I'm in the full-down position. I thought I was about ready to meet Jesus, and I'm saying to myself, God, just let me see the light. Just let me see the light. I guess I've been watching too many movies about dying and going to heaven. All right? When I got to the mercy room, the, the nurse could see I was in a lot of pain. And you know how they normally triage you before you go? there. Right, you know, right straight through, right onto the gurney. They had me hooked up to an EKG machine. The doctor come in and was asking me questions. And he poked me right below the sternum and about made me pass out. Uh, You stay in overnight when they think you got a heart attack. You do blood tests, I did a stress test, and guess what? No heart attack. I'm still standing here in front of you folks, right? Um, What they surmised was it was a gallstone. I passed a gallstone, of all things, right? A gallstone. But I want to tell you, it taught me something there. That defining moment taught me something. It taught me that our day-to-day health should never be taken for granted. I learned that in a moment, in a moment, life can change dramatically. From a faith perspective, I needed to be ready to face difficult circumstances and situations that inevitably come up. I need to trust God in all circumstances, which led me to this next event. Back in 2013, my son Toby uh, volunteered and he went over to Bagram, Afghanistan, spent seven months over there you got to love this day and age in technology because he's on the other side of the world. Once he got over there and established, we would chat every night. You could rate it around 5 o'clock. 2 o'clock in the morning there, it's 5 o'clock in the evening here. He was just getting done with his duties and he would text us or he would FaceTime. I love that. Okay? It was great that you could see your son in a war zone and you knew that he was okay and you could ask him questions and everything was going just fine. Um, Until one day, my daughter called. It was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. She said, Dad, did you hear from Toby today? And I said, no, why? He said, "Why?" she said, well, I heard from my mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, that there were four soldiers killed in Bagram on that base in Afghanistan today. So as a parent, you can imagine what you start thinking. And my wife and I, we start texting some of his friends to see if they heard from him. We're waiting and five o'clock rolls around, no text, no no FaceTime. We check with his friends, nobody's heard from him. And you start wondering. And I'll tell you what's going through my mind as a parent right then. What if it's him? I'll tell you something even harder. When you ask and you pray to God, God, please don't let it be my son. That's a hard prayer to pray when you know that somebody's son, four people's, four families have been impacted by death. Okay, It's a hard prayer to pray. Please don't let it be my son. I can remember going to work the next morning, still not hearing from my son. Through the night, didn't get much sleep. Next morning, I'm on my way to work, and I'm struggling and wrestling with God. And I'm thinking, what is life going to be like without Toby? It's our youngest son. I'm, I'm trying to imagine, and I'm wrestling with God. And, and finally, I got to this point. I'm crying. I can remember I'm going down 356, right into Freeport, heading towards Greensboro. I know exactly where it's at. And I just said, God, I, in my feelings and my emotions, you're frustrated, angry, and worried. And then I listen and hear God's word, and it's, he's telling me to trust him that he's a good God in all situations. And I said, and I made the commitment in my mind right then, God, regardless of the outcome, I'm going to trust you because you're a good God. And it was like a ton of bricks came off of my chest. And it was like I was on a mountaintop experience, really, really close with God. And a verse came to mind, John ten ten. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. I knew in that moment, I didn't know the outcome of my son, but I knew regardless, dead or alive, that God is a good God and he would take care of what we needed. Well, fast forward, my son's okay, and we found out that, hey, you know what the deal was? Whenever something like that happens over there, they shut down all communication. Nobody can call, call in or out until all the folks that have been impacted have been properly notified. I want to talk about one more event. And that was, this one happened last April. And this is a little lighter, so you guys can, man, this is really heavy, Jack. You're really getting heavy. I went to my barber, Fred Clark. He lives just a half a mile away from me. And I go rolling in. It's my routine. About once every five or six weeks, I got to get a haircut. I don't like it on my ears. That's that military that's in you. And I go into him and I said, "Fred, I'm here for my haircut." He said, "This is your last one." I said, "What are you talking about? My last one?" He said, "I'm retired in two weeks." And I'm here to tell you that was like I was telling everybody about this. This is like a another defining moment. I'm just you know, listen. You got to understand. I've been going to this guy for over 30 years. My kids, when they first got their very first haircut, had gone to that guy and had every single haircut since then, all my boys, until they moved out of the house and moved too far away to go. And sometimes they come back into town and have a haircut from Fred. And and I'm telling you, I was thinking, honestly, I was thinking that whenever I am in my casket, you know, that last haircut. Fred's going to give me that last haircut that makes you look good in the casket. I'm serious. That's how I was looking at it. And I I realized that was not going to be the case. It was almost like Fred died to me. Really. And so what, what it taught me, though, listen, it taught me to consider how quickly my life was passing by. How I take people for granted just because they're consistently there beside us for a long period of time. It gave me a fresh appreciation that the moments I have in life to tell tell others about the good news of Jesus. I ain't got that long. My barber's retired. I'm close after him. All right? So these these are these moments. And what I want to do is take us, I say all that to take us to the passage that we're going to focus on today. And that comes from the end of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As a disciple of Jesus, John was an eyewitness to the signs and miracles Jesus performed during his three years of active ministry. John gives eyewitness testimony of some specific signs and miracles, or shall I say, his defining moments that he witnessed that helped him grow in his faith. We see this in verse. 30, that this wasn't an exhaustive list, this isn't everything. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But rather, John picks these out for a reason. Because he felt that they were the most important in helping one to believe. By the way, a little parentheses moment. For those of you that attend membership class, I try to teach a lot of them. One of the new things that we do right now is we, we, I take the membership class and I say, hey, listen, I show them this verse. I show them this verse in the book of John. And then I say, what we're going to do as your assignment, your homework assignment, is during this week sometime during the week, I just want you to read the first chapter of John. And how I want you to approach it is to look at read it, just the first chapter, and I want you to look and focus for the one verse, the one verse that pops off the page to you. For whatever reason, it's interesting, or you got a question about it, or it, that was very, I never knew that. That one verse, that's what you're looking for. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a way to help them teach and learn And grow deeper in their trust in God by reading God's word for themselves. The second objective that we have is that we do it every week during membership class. So that we can form a habit for them. Form a habit by reading and meditating on God's word. And by the way, by the way, if you never really started doing that, John, knowing that this verse is in there, knowing why John wrote the book, is a good place to start your daily habit of reading God's word and mining it for the truth that's in it. Now, what I want to do is quickly go through and highlight some of the things in John's gospel, okay, that are recorded so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So right off the start, I'm going to, we're going to go through these pretty quickly because Fred says I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to go through. Okay. Right off the start. After witnessing all that Jesus has done, John identifies Jesus as the Word and God. John understood that the signs and miracles that Jesus performed were a validation of him being the Son of God. You see that right in John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Let me read them to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or excuse me, was with God, and the Word was God. And then in 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 2, John identifies Jesus' first miracle. Do you know what his first miracle is? Jesus turns the water into wine at a wedding feast in Canaan. And that is the beginning of his active ministry. You know why? Because word travels pretty fast in a small town and rightly so, you'd start talking about it too if you witnessed somebody turning plain water into fine wine. In John chapter 3, John states that Jesus' purpose for coming into the world, as I mentioned earlier, God desires to have a trusting relationship with each and every one of us. John three sixteen. everybody knows three sixteen, and some of you know 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, because of our sin, we are condemned already. However, God, in his infinite love, takes the initiative to restore that broken relationship and reconcile us back to him. John chapter 4, we see Jesus confronting the Samaritan woman at the well, who had five husbands, by the way, and was living with the sixth man. Not to condemn her. He called her out, but not to condemn her, but that she may be saved. And by the way, many in her community became saved because of her testimony of Jesus. John chapter 6. Now, I want you to think now, folks. If you were John, or if you were walking alongside and you start seeing these things, how these defining moments would start to shape your faith. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish. We just kind of pr- briefly peruse over that, but that's phenomenal. That's a miracle. And then he turns around and walks on the water. Did I mention that the words getting out about Jesus? 5,000 people are stirring up now to see what's coming next. All right? Jesus, John chapter 8, forgives the woman caught in adultery. Once again didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save him. John wants us to understand that Jesus is God, the Son of God, God the Son. And he documents two phenomenal quotes that Jesus made where Jesus claims to be God. Did you see these before? John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Then in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 33, I and the Father are one. Once again, here we go again, folks. The Jews picked up the stone again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you. Being a man, make yourself God. As you can see, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself. The I Am title comes right from the book of Exodus where Moses is told by God to go to Egypt and lead his people out of bondage. Moses says, God, God, who am I going to say sent me? And you see in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. Now there's an interesting verse in here, folks, that I want to point out. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it to you. John chapter 9, verse 2. And the disciples, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents but the works of God might be displayed in him. John learned that some bad things happen, not as a result of anyone's sin, but rather so that God may be glorified. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Okay, now we're really getting serious here, folks. John witnesses that Jesus has the power over death itself. Here's your third map, John 14, 6. Jesus said to to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me finally after all that and others john ends his gospel with the ultimate defining moment as he describes the death burial and resurrection of jesus in 18 19 20 and 21 now remember i said i'm a tangible type of guy so I want to share this picture that I took from the, of the Temple Mount looking at the Mount of Olives, or looking from the Mount of Olives. I'm on the Mount of Olives looking at the Temple Mount. We celebrated Monday, Thursday yesterday where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where Judas portrays him. Lower right, you should see it there. You know that there are still olive trees there that are over 10, 2,000 years old. So they were around when Jesus was there. Matthew indicates that Judas came to the garden with a great crowd with swords and clubs. So you imagine? A lot, a lot of people coming into the garden looking for Jesus with swords and clubs. However, John's the only gospel. If you look at all the gospels, he's the only one that, that displays something unique here. Where Jesus sets aside his power even in the midst of betrayal to surrender himself to his father's plan for our salvation. You'll see this only in John. But before I show you the verse, I want to read this to you from Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. That's the voice of the Lord here, folks. Now, let's look at John chapter 18. Like I said, this is the only place you'll see this in the four Gospels. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Now, do you think they were just startled because I said, I am he? That they fell? No. God's voice is even powerful. It was by the power of Jesus' spoken word that they fell to the ground. Um, And fortunately for them, Jesus constrained his power, even the power of his voice, to be taken as captive. From there, the soldiers take Jesus across the Kidron Valley. You should be seeing that. Yep, right there in the middle. All right? Um, And they're taking him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to be the subject of a mock trial and to be beaten. You can go there today and walk on the same steps that Jesus walked on. Then Caiaphas sends Jesus to Pilate to be questioned, beaten, and ultimately executed because the Jews could not do that. It was here that Jesus tells Pilate that everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate finds no fault in questioning Jesus, but ultimately succumbs to the pressure and the wishes of the crowd who want him crucified. Jesus is taken to Golgotha to be crucified on a cross for the sins of the world. And you'll note now we have two locations for Golgotha and Jesus' potential burial site. The traditional location, there's a church that's built over top of the tomb. That's the traditional one. The second is is called Gordon's Calvary and Garden Tomb. As you can see by the next picture, why Gordon felt this could be Golgotha, the hill of the Skull. Let's see if you can go to the next slide, please. Next slide. You see that hill on the left-hand side where the bus is, and you see the face right in the middle. You can take—they have a picture of this at the turn of the century in eighteen something. It's the same thing. All right. Well, back in the eighteen hundreds, Gordon seen this from the north wall, looking out of the holy city. And they started to do excavations just to the left of that, that location. And they uncovered this garden tomb, which is about 50 yards away. And you can see that there on the right. Looking inside, you can see the preparation area where they would have laid the body. And then while there, nobody's absolutely sure, we don't know if it's a traditional site or here, um, Nobody knows for sure where Jesus was crucified and buried, but one thing is for certain. And you could see it on that door there on the right-hand side. He is not here. He's risen. Amen. It's obvious that these defining moments had an impact on John's faith. It was John who followed Jesus to Caiaphas's palace along with Peter when Peter denied him, to watch Jesus be beaten and falsely accused. It was John who witnessed the crucifixion. Remember he was there because Jesus asked him To take care of his mother. It was John who outran Peter to the tomb that resurrection morning. When Mary told the disciples that it was empty. And it was John who's telling us that the defining moments he experienced and shared with us. Is more than enough to believe in Jesus. Here's your fourth map. It's the verse that we've been talking about. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I know in a group this size, some of you are saying, hey, you know what, Jack, I don't know if I've really had one of those defining moments that you're talking about. And generally speaking, I can understand that because in our younger years, there tend to be, these moments tend to be more positive in nature. I'm not saying all the time, but most times so, in a group their size, there may be some of you that ever really had even a negative defining moment. And however, I will tell you, the longer I live, um, I realize that the defining moments, negative, uh, tend to be more negative than positive. And once again, I'm not saying always, but more times than not. And the longer I live and see severe injury or sickness or death impact those I know and love. I realize these defining moments can shake you to the core of your faith. In either case, I guarantee, I guarantee that these defining moments, whether they be positive or negative, are going to drive you closer or away from God. Let me show you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others to sin. What's Mr. Spurgeon say? Well, let's first talk about the gospel. Gospel means good news. What's the good news? Our sin separates us from God, and the penalty of sin is death. Our condition before God is we are guilty, something that God cannot tolerate. We are guilty in our sin. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and guess what, folks? Dead people can't fix themselves. Therefore, out of God's infinite love for us, he did what we could not do. God loves us so much and wants us to have a trusting relationship with him that he would send his only son, Jesus, to put on humanity, live a perfect life, pay the penalty for our sins. John the Baptist correctly states, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' death is accepted by God as propitiation, what we call payment in full for our sins, past, present, and future. All who are willing to put their faith in Jesus, in essence, once I accept Jesus by faith, my sin debt is paid in full at the cross. God demonstrates his love that, excuse me, God then demonstrates that Jesus' sacrifice is accepted by him and he raises Jesus from the dead. In this one act, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God is both just and loving at the same time. Therefore, those who are willing to, who are in a trusting relationship with Jesus, are no longer seen as guilty for their sin, but rather justified in Christ. Let's look at Romans four twenty two and twenty five. That is why his faith is counted to him as righteousness. But the words it is counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's this good news, as Spurgeon says, can melt some hearts like wax and turn some hearts hearts hard like clay. How does that happen? How does that happen? Sin has a tendency to blind us to the truth. As we've been discussing life's circumstances. These defining events have a way of shaking us up just enough to think more deeply about the meaning of our lives in this fallen world. As I mentioned, defining events, positive or negative, have the ability to drive you closer or further away from God. So what makes the difference? I mean, that's the ultimate question. When, a, when one of these things come, how does it happen that some people are driven closer to God and some people are driven away? Well, it happens to be how you view the world and the people around you when these events occur. Let's talk about that here briefly. If we view the world as meaningless and purposeless, we have a tendency to chalk up everything as happening by chance, having no real meaning or purpose. We will tend to push things aside and tend to think that they're just by happenstance. This is a very difficult place to be in light of the sort, some more of the negative defining events that one will experience, especially as you get older. This view of life will push you away from God when difficult circumstances come up in life. Additionally, if you're surrounded by those types of people, you have no recourse of being able to see the truth and the reality from God's perspective. None. It's who you hang out with. Long-term sickness illness and or death of a loved one or facing your own mortality have a way of making us see the reality of sin in our fallen world. Coming to church on a regular basis to get God's perspective on life is a great way to view life differently. Realizing that God is sovereign, sovereignly working out His plan to draw us all closer into a trusting relationship with Him will help ease our pain and sorrow in the midst of the most difficult circumstances Additionally, being in community with other believers is a great source of wisdom and comfort when things go dramatically wrong. I will tell you that mankind's greatest fear is death. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can find comfort in knowing that this life is not all that there is. We can be assured that the circumstances we face are there to help us draw closer to God and to trust Him more and more in a world full of pain and sorrow, Jesus defeated and took away the sting of death. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through fifty eight, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that Lord—that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, in conclusion, knowing where you stand in your relationship with God makes all the difference in the world. Don't take life for granted. Understand that God has done everything possible to reconcile our relationship with him. All you need to do is believe by faith that Christ paid the penalty for your sin and that Jesus' resurrection is our justification before God. That's why Easter is the most important holiday we observe. We are reminded just how much God loves us. I'll just close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 2, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.